This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from the Life is Good Ping Podcast. Join co-founders of Life is Good, Bert and John Jacobs, as they talk to influential musicians, athletes, business leaders, and everyday people about the role of optimism in their lives. They'll also end each episode with a ping-pong charity challenge where the winner gets to donate to their charity of choice. The Life is Good Ping Podcast kicks off Thursday, June 13th with the legendary Ringo Starr. Subscribe now on Stitcher, Spotify, or iTunes, and add some good vibes to your day. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Admiral William H. McRaven is a part of American military history, having been involved in some of the most famous missions in recent memory, including the capture of Saddam Hussein, the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips, and the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. After he retired as commander of U.S. Special Operations Forces, he went on to author the number one New York Times bestseller, Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. Now Admiral Bill McRaven is back with amazing stories of adventure during his career as a Navy SEAL and commander of U.S. Special Operations Forces in a thrilling new memoir titled Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations. And today, the Admiral joins me on the show to reveal how even as a little boy, he had an adventurous spirit, one that sometimes landed him in the hospital, how a high school track coach inspired him to apply for the Navy SEAL program, and why even today, he still compares any struggle he faces to the grueling endurance test of the Navy SEAL's Hell Week. He recalls the night he got a gut feeling he was going to catch Saddam Hussein and was right, how Saddam Hussein never made his bed while he was in McRaven's custody and what that says about him, and what McRaven said when he finally decided to meet with Saddam face to face. He talks about the strange experience of personally seeing monsters like Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden cut down to size, how he managed to keep the preparation of the bin Laden raid a secret, and how thousands of special operations prepared him for that mission of a lifetime. Plus, he weighs in on the Navy SEAL who stands accused of war crimes, responds to those calls for him to run for president, and expresses his sincerest regret that he's the reason you have to take off your shoes at the airport. Coming up with Admiral William McRaven in just a moment. In his 37 years as a Navy SEAL, Admiral William McRaven commanded at every level. His final assignment was as commander of all U.S. Special Operations Forces, and after retiring from the Navy, he served as the Chancellor of the University of Texas System from 2015 to 2018. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Make Your Bed, and now he's followed it up with a new book titled Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations. Admiral William McRaven, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. Can I just address you as Admiral Badass? Because after reading this book, <laughs> I feel that that's a, a little bit more to the point. <laughs> yeah, you know, what I hope people take away from the, the book Sea Stories is, is not so much about, uh, frankly, 
you know, my sea stories, but about the great soldier, sailors, airmen, and Marines that, uh, that I worked with. Uh, you know, I tried to capture, you know, their courage, their heroism, and, and their sacrifice in the stories. Admittedly, it, the stories are through my eyes, but, uh, but again, I hope, hope the takeaway is about these great young men and women that I had the honor to work with. Yeah, and I have to say it was a really fun read. And you tell these incredible stories of some of your closest calls and greatest successes, including some of the most important special operations missions of the past four decades. You certainly have a talent for storytelling, but I guess it's kind of in your DNA from what I read here, because growing up as a quote-unquote military brat, hanging around your dad and his buddies, you must have heard a lot of war stories like these all the time. You know, I did. Uh, my father was a, uh, a fighter pilot during World War II, and of course uh, today is uh, one of the, the more solemn yet inspiring days in, uh, in military history with uh, the landing at, at D-Day and the uh, and the great sacrifice of those young men, both Americans and allies, that participated in that uh, really historic event. Uh, but my dad, uh, again, uh, that generation, that kind of greatest generation, uh, they they tended to, to tell stories, you know. And these were these were men and women who were children of World War One and the Great Depression, and then all the men went off to World War Two, and some of them continued on to Korea. So I would sit kind of at the you know the feet of my dad and listen to him and his buddies talk about you know the, their adventures. And, and the stories were always uh, poignant, they were funny, they were inspiring, maybe sometimes a little unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> but I think the stories allowed them to deal with, you know, a lot of the things that that generation had to deal with. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, I, I look at my life through that lens. And I remember my dad telling me one time, he said, Bill, life is all how you remember it. And so <laughs> these stories are some about how I remember my life. And even as a boy, you were pretty fearless. You recall in the book all of your childhood adventures that often landed you in the hospital. And even at one point, you and your pals try to pull off a James Bond or Mission Impossible style break-in into an ammunition storage facility at Lackland Air Force Base. Looking back, did you sort of feel like you were always destined to go into special operations? You know, my sisters uh, were talking to me the other day, and my, my oldest sister, Mary Anna, said, you know, we worried about you every single day because, you know, I was just one of those kids that uh, everything seemed like an adventure. Uh, you know, I got into, uh, you know, good-natured uh, trouble that kids got into, although the ammo storage depot uh, <laughs> probably was not the smartest thing I did. But but I was 10 years old, so maybe maybe I didn't have the best judgment in the world. But, yeah, you know, my, my parents weren't helicopter parents. They allowed us to go out and, uh, and play and build forts and do things that uh, kids did back then. And, of course, because that was the – the 60s, there was there was this uh, James Bond theme going on, and uh, I Spy, and the, you know the Man from Uncle. So you know we kids, we kind of uh, tried to personify some of those uh, those spy heroes of the age. And you attribute your career in special operations and your ability to stick it out through Navy SEAL training to a track coach that you had in high school. What did he teach you? Yeah, the, I, I think of the 18 stories that are in uh, the book C Stories, uh, I, I tell folks, look, if I had to pick one, it would be hard, but the, the story entitled It's a Wonderful Life might be one of them uh, because, you know, not everybody will get a chance to, you know, to go get a, a bin Laden or, or rescue a Captain Phillips or go get Saddam Hussein. But the story of uh, Coach Turnbow, he was uh, an assistant football coach at my high school at Theodore Roosevelt High School in San Antonio. And I was a, a miler on the track team. Again, this was Texas, where, where football was king. And, uh, and I was, in my senior year, getting ready to try to, to break the school record in the mile. And the school record was uh, four minutes and 32 seconds. 
and I was on my second to the last race and frankly didn't have a good race. I ran a 437. That was five seconds off the school record. And that's a, that's a long ways away from the record uh, in the mile. And I had one week left, uh, one more race left. And the night before the race, my dad uh, says, hey, uh, coach is on the, on the telephone for you. And so I, I went and picked up the phone and said, yes, sir. And, and it was his coach, Jerry Turnbow. And I didn't even think Coach Turnbow knew who I was. I mean, he was a, a football coach, and he had spent a little time, I think, with the track team. But it had been, been a while since I had spent any time around him, and I, I just didn't think he knew who I was. And he said, uh, said Bill, uh, I understand, uh, you know, you got a, a race tomorrow, and, and you're going to try to break the, uh, the school record the mile. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, Bill, you can do it. You just run hard and you can do it. You can break that school record. And I tell him the story. I said, it, it really was one of those, you know, little, you know, little bit of motivation. And the next day I went out and, and broke the school record. Now, the fact of the matter is the school record didn't, you know, nobody really cared about it. In fact, a year later, the school record was broken. But to me, it was important. And it was important because I was able to set a goal and achieve that goal. And I knew if I was able to break the school record in the mile, that I could go on to be a Navy SEAL. So when you have an opportunity to kind of look, you know, look at your, the, the totality of your life, which when you write a memoir, you have the opportunity to do, I look back on that point as a, as a little bit of a defining moment. I mean, coaches call to me, inspired me to break the school record or to run hard and break the school record. And the fact that I broke it gave me the impetus and the momentum to go on to SEAL training. And Had I not broken the school record, I'm not sure I would have gone on to be a Navy SEAL and everything about my life would have changed. So the, the kind of point of the story is, look, again, not everybody's going to get a chance to go on the bin Laden raid, but everybody has the opportunity to inspire somebody else and never pass up the opportunity to do that. And I have to imagine that that belief uh, certainly must have gotten tested during SEAL training and during Hell Week in particular. You say that throughout your 37-year career, you've compared every struggle that you've ever faced to Hell Week. <laughs> what was the worst part of Hell Week? So, yeah, so in SEAL training, uh, SEAL training is about six months long, and it's broken down into three phases. Now, the first phase is about 10 weeks long, and, and towards the end of the first phase, you have what we refer to as Hell Week, and it's six days, essentially, of no sleep and being constantly, you know, cold, wet, and miserable. You are in the water. You are being, you know, run to death. You are uh, running up and down the sand dunes. You're doing calisthenics. The instructors, and all of my instructors were Vietnam vets, uh, they really wanted to test the young students that were there. They wanted to see who was strong of you know, mind and body because they wanted to make sure that you know, only the best men got into the SEAL team. So they really pressured you hard uh, to, to test you. But in SEAL training, there's one day, Wednesday of the week, SEAL training or, or Hell Week starts on a Sunday. And on Wednesday of that week, we go down to the Mud Flats. And the Mud Flats was an area in South San Diego where the water from Tijuana and San Diego kind of created the slough area. And, and in the slough, you know, the mud was, uh, was about three or four feet deep, uh, thick, uh, deep at the, uh, uh, in the center of the slough. And you would go through these, uh, you know, mud wrestling and mud relays, and, and the mud was cold, and it, was, it would grab you. And, you know, you hadn't slept in three or four days, and it was exhausting. But the one thing about the mud flats that I remember is uh, at one point in time, my class, which was at about 55 guys, I think, at that point in time, had committed some you know, egregious violation of the rules. So the instructors had thrown us all in the mud. And you know, we're lined up in kind of three rows and we've locked arms for solidarity. And the instructors uh, are really trying to play us off against one another and, and tell us that, hey, we can all come out of the mud and get nice and dry and warm if only five of us will quit. Well, that was a, a common technique they used. 
But at one point in time, when I could see a couple of guys were getting ready to quit, one young kid at the end of the, the line I was in started singing. And, you know, it was this song that was kind of terribly out of tune, and, uh, but, but sung with great enthusiasm, as I've said before. And, and all of a sudden, another guy started singing, and then another. And the instructors came running up and yelling at us to stop singing. But the singing persisted. And, and the, the point of that story was the fact that, you know, it wasn't the officer that started singing. It was one of the junior enlisted guys. And that guy gave us hope, gave all of us hope that if he could sing when he was up to his neck in mud, you know, maybe the rest of us could make it through this very, very tough evening. And because that kid gave us some hope, gave us some inspiration, we all made it through Wednesday of Hell Week and, and pressed on, and almost all of those men made it to the end of Hell Week. Um, but you mentioned earlier, you know, when I would go through the rest of my, my career, there were a lot of days when I was cold, wet, and miserable, and I would measure them by... Was I as cold and wet and miserable as I was in, in Hell Week? And most of the time, the answer was no. Has there ever been anything worse than Hell Week? I mean, you've, you've had broken bones, blood cancer, nearly drowning. I mean, you've <laughs> certainly put yourself to the test. Yeah, you know, I, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, again, I, I had a helicopter that uh, went down in the water. I had a parachute, yeah. very severe parachute accident. I uh, had a, a pretty bad boat accident. But I will tell you, you know, when I, I look back on those relative to the injuries that I saw kind of post 9-11, uh, the young men uh, and women that were in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, mo most of my injuries were, were just a scratch mm -hmm. compared to, to some of those young, uh, young great warriors. Um, but, but yeah, you know, you, you have times that are difficult. Everybody has difficult times in their life. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what I hope, again, people see in the book is that, you know, you can overcome those difficult times. Uh, sometimes you need a lot of people to help you. And when I talked about my parachute accident, which was in 2001, right before 9-11, um, I was the senior SEAL on the West Coast. I mean, I, I was an important guy, you know, and I, and I thought I was kind of invincible. I'd been through a lot in my career and, and managed to, you know, to get by and do well. And then all of a sudden I have this pretty horrific parachute accident, and I'm, I'm laid up in a hospital bed and then in a wheelchair and on crutches, and, uh, and my wife had to be my nurse. My, you know, my colleagues had to come by and take care of me. I had to go through rehab. My boss, uh, the admiral, had to make sure that I was able to stay in the Navy. And you realize that it takes a lot of people to get you through life. And, uh, and so I, I hope people recognize that, you know, find as many friends as you can, make as many friends as you can, because sooner or later, you're going to need those friends. And conversely, when you have the opportunity to help a friend, uh, go out of your way to help them. Yeah, and when you got in that accident, you ended up having to take three weeks of leave to recover. But as you tell it, that three weeks very well may have saved your life because otherwise you would have been in the Pentagon on 9-11 and might have died, right? Well, I don't want to make too much of that. <laughs> okay. uh, I will tell you, I mean, uh, yes, I, I had to rehab. I had to do my rehabilitation back in San Diego. I was supposed to go to the Pentagon, but I would never make that uh, leap of logic to say that I would have been there, you know, right at that point in time. There were, there were too many great, uh, you know, folks lost in the Pentagon for me to equate my accident with a relationship with that. What did happen, however, was that I didn't end up going to the Pentagon. I ended up going to the White House uh, after 9-11, and that really did kind of change uh, a lot of my future because I spent two years in the White House from October of 2001 to uh, you know, June or July, I forget, of 2003, and, and I was able to serve, uh, you know, under President George W. Bush and had a chance to kind of see how the, how the White House ran and, and how decisions were made. And that was very helpful for me later on when I became an admiral because I, I knew how to get, uh, you know, presidential decisions made and how to, to kind of move the needle on, on key, mm -hmm. uh, key issues. 
So the, the point about not, uh, you know, not heading off to the Pentagon really wasn't trying to relate it to 9-11 as much as it was to say that as I moved to the White House, uh, that, that again kind of fundamentally changed the trajectory of, of my future because I understood how things worked in the White House uh, for my future assignments. And yet in sea stories, there are a number of stories where either you've had a gut instinct or felt the hand of providence somehow guiding you and experienced something that just seems totally unexplainable. In fact, in one case on a mission in, I think, British Columbia, it sounds like you may have even witnessed something that can only be described as supernatural. What do you make of all that? Well, you know the uh, the mission in, uh, in in British Columbia uh, referred that the chapter is called the Ghost of Tofino, and and unfortunately the Navy lost uh, a, a, a surveillance plane back in 1948. We were we were asked to go up to try to find this uh, in, in the late 80s, and uh, and we were able to find the uh, the remains of the plane and. Uh, and you know there there was an, an event there at the kind of our last day we had uh, we'd had this kind of solemn ceremony um, where we had found uh, some of the small pieces of the remains of the crew and we we buried them and and paid our respects to these great great uh, naval officers and enlisted men that had perished in the crash and uh, and then suddenly and and kind of unexplicably uh, cresting over the top of the kind of mountain ridge where we were in this kind of bowl, uh, I saw what looked like a parachute flare, a military parachute flare. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, that that's interesting. And then there was another one and another one and another one. And one of the guys turned to me and he said, hey, sir, how many of those flares do you see? And I looked up and there were nine of them. And there just happened to be nine crew members on the plane. Now, I will tell you, I'm sure there is a perfectly logical explanation. <laughs> uh, and I, I, again, don't want to make more of it is, but this is what makes a sea story a sea story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's through my eyes. It's yeah. what I experienced, uh, you know, what I felt, what I believed. And at the time, I had to admit, it was a little eerie. And, I, of course, I wasn't the only one that, that saw it. There were a number of other people that were there on the ground. And, again, I, I wouldn't imply too much. Uh, other than to say, you know, you wanted to re- pay your respects to the, the, uh, the great airmen that perished in that crash. And, uh, and if we were able to somehow bring them back to rest, which we did actually end up uh, burying uh, many of the remains back in Arlington uh, to that, that great crew that, uh, that perished back in 1948. We were just talking about your time in the Bush White House. Uh, you were tasked with drafting a comprehensive counterterrorism strategy. And I do have a little bit of a bone to pick with you because in the book, you claim that you were the guy who made the fateful suggestion that the TSA screeners should make passengers take off their shoes and take out their laptops at the airport. Uh, thanks a lot for that, Admiral. Yeah, <laughs> you, you any know, regrets now? Me, Dad, why in the world did you put that in the book? <laughs> but here's what I'll tell you. So this was the, uh, for those that might remember, uh, the shoe bomber was a fellow named Richard Reed. Mm-hmm. And I was called down. I was working at the White House. I was called down into the Situation Room. Uh, as Richard Reed had been uh, apprehended, and uh, and I'm talking to a friend of mine over at the FAA who has sent me schematics of the uh, the shoe bomb, and he and I are looking at it, and he is a demolitions expert, and he said, "Hey, Bill, I th- this would have worked," and of course, what we didn't know at the time, it's easy to look back in retrospect and say, "Well, it was one guy, and you know maybe he was a little nutty," and uh, but the fact of the matter is, 
We didn't know whether or not this was a concerted effort on the part of al-Qaeda. Were there more Richard Reeds out there? Were they all showing up at the airport at the same point in time? So my boss, uh, who was in charge of the Office Combating Terrorism, was up on Air Force One, and I made the call to him. And I said, uh, hey, boss, I, I just uh, you know talked to the EOD expert over the FAA, and I said, I, I think we need to have people take off their shoes. And, and, oh, by the way, we probably need to have their laptops checked. Now, I am certain that the President of the United States or Governor Ridge, the uh, – uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, are the ones that made the final decision. Uh, <laughs> but I might have gotten the ball rolling. And, oh. and if I did, to those people that are walking around shoeless, uh, my apology. Well, I'll take that. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Admiral William McRaven when we come back in just a moment. The median annual salary for a cloud computing job is $146,000. Stay up to date and master the tech skills that companies want with a Udacity Nano degree. Udacity's Nano degree programs use the most effective online methods to teach technology subjects from computer programming to the latest in cloud computing. Now get 10% off when you go to udacity.com/kick and use code KICK10. Udacity works directly with industry experts to design programs that include real-world subjects providing you with true hands-on learning. You'll develop a job-ready portfolio that showcases the right tech skills. Udacity's flexible pay-as-you-learn monthly program lets you learn at your own pace and they'll work with you to create a custom learning plan that fits your schedule. In addition, you'll get a personal one-on-one -on -one technical mentor who can answer your questions and keep you on track. Udacity provides a full suite of career services, including coaching and resume review, to help you land the job you want. Start your future today. Go to udacity.com kick and use code KICK10 to get 10% off. That's udacity, U-D-A-C-I-T-Y, dot com slash kick, code KICK10. Save 10% today. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. And to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree so your ancestors become more than just a name. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about a person. My wife recently took an Ancestry DNA test to learn more about her Scottish heritage. I was so blown away by her results that I immediately ordered my own Ancestry DNA kit. The test was incredibly easy to take, it only took five minutes, and now I can't wait to see if some of the old family stories are true. In the meantime, Ancestry DNA gives me real-time updates every step of the way. Go to Ancestry.com kick today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash kick for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash kick. When America went to war with Iraq, you were placed in charge of the hunt for Saddam Hussein. And there's another case here where you sort of trusted your gut feeling and it ended up paying off. Can you tell us about the night that you knew you were going to catch Saddam? Yeah, so um, we had been, I got to Iraq in October of 2003, and we'd had a lot of leads on Saddam Hussein, and, and frankly, none of them had, had panned out. Uh, and then 
in mid-December, uh, we got this uh, lead from a guy we had held in our little jail cell. But I had a meeting to go to down uh, in, in Qatar. So I was going from Baghdad, getting on a C-130 aircraft and heading down to Qatar. The night before, I'd had a chance to talk to one of the uh, Army intelligence analysts from our great Army Special Operations Unit that, uh, that was uh, really doing, doing the hunting. And he had said something to me. And, and again, as I tell folks, I think intuition has a lot to do with experience. You know, when, do, when does your mind uh, begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together? Mm-hmm. Well, I hadn't put the pieces uh, to the puzzle together. I got on the C-130 and I was heading from Baghdad and we'd gotten airborne and we're heading across. And then all of a sudden, I just had a little bit of an epiphany and I said, tonight's the night. So I, I grabbed my aide and I said, Hank, uh, we got to turn this plane around. Uh, we're going to get Saddam tonight. And he, he said, sir, did, did somebody call you? Uh, did, did you get some intelligence? What's going on? I said, no, we just need to turn around. Well, we couldn't turn around because we were in Iraqi airspace. We actually had to fly to, to uh, Qatar. Uh, I got another C-130 and immediately came right back. And sure enough, as, uh, as I got back on the ground in Baghdad, got into my command center, the Army Special Operations Unit uh, under Lieutenant Colonel uh, Bill Coltrip uh, was, was moving to their, their first objective and then began to move to the second objective. And uh, and sure enough, the and I think you, you've probably seen the photo of the the iconic spider hole. Uh, yeah. They they found Saddam, pulled the pulled the lid to the spider hole out, and there was Saddam. And he said, "You know, I'm Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, and I'm here to negotiate." And as uh, <laughs> talk about negotiating from a position of strength, huh? <laughs> yeah, as uh, legend has it, and and I'm told it's true. One of the uh, one of the great army operators said. Uh, well, sir, uh, President Bush sends his regards, <laughs> and uh, they pulled Saddam out and then brought him back to Baghdad, uh, where I held on to him for about 30 days. Uh, yeah, Saddam was what I might euphemistically call your guest at Camp Nava for a month or so. Uh, during right. that time, you say that you avoided direct contact with him, but when he was supposed to be transferred out of there, you finally decided to meet him. What was that like, meeting him? Well, so I actually saw him every day. So right, I right. went into his, we kept him in a, in a room uh, where I had a medic or a corpsman and a, a guard in the room uh, 24 hours a day. And I had given them specific instructions not to talk to Saddam. I didn't want him to engage in conversation. But I went in every day to check on him to make sure, again, he was doing okay because we had a responsibility. He was now essentially a, a POW for us. And we treated him very well. Um, but, uh, I would go in and he would always try to engage me in conversation and I would motion him to sit down because I didn't want to get into a conversation with him. Uh, I wanted him to understand that his days of being the president of Iraq were over. Uh, and, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't really deserve to have a conversation with anybody, but, uh, unbeknownst to him, of course, uh, I was getting ready to transfer him on, on about day 30. I think it was actually New Year's day, uh, New Year's Eve. Um, and, uh, now nah, I must, must've been later than that. Um, since we, I think we captured him on the 13th. And so it was probably mid, mid, uh, mid January, but we were getting ready to transfer him. And, uh, and I decided, you know, we'd been having a lot of, uh, engagement. The Iraqi insurgency was beginning again. Saddam didn't know this because, uh, we, we had him in a, in a jail cell, but I went in and finally sat down and, and told him, I said, look, you know, a lot of your Iraqi compatriots are are getting killed because they're continuing to fight and, you know, uh, you need to tell them to lay down their arms. And I knew it was a gamble. I mean, I, I knew he probably wouldn't agree to do that, but I figured I had nothing to lose. Um, and he, of course, again, he, he said uh, he wouldn't do that. And then I told him, I said, well, then you're not going to see me again. 
and and I could tell that upset him because he knew he was in a, a fairly you know good place. And that night uh, we we transferred him to the military police unit not too far away. And then soon thereafter the Iraqis took custody of him. But you know the one point that I make in the book about Saddam Hussein is, you know he was uh, again incarcerated for while well, I had him all about 30 days. And he came in the day one and he was pompous and he was arrogant. Uh, but I will tell you, a week or so into it, he was just a pathetic old man. Hmm. And I contrast that in a lot of ways with uh, with somebody like Nelson Mandela, who was incarcerated for you know almost three decades. And because Mandela had this great strength of character, because he was a man of such integrity, he was able to you know hold up and, and almost grow stronger as a result of of his beliefs and his strength of personality over the decades he was there. And because Saddam Hussein, in contrast, because Saddam Hussein was just a pathetic old man, you know, he crumbled in a couple of days. Uh, and, and it is, uh, I mean, again, he no longer had his palaces, he no longer had his generals, he no longer had his handmaidens, uh, and he was just that, a pathetic old man. And perhaps one of the worst sins of all, you say Saddam never made his bed, right? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, you know, we had given him this, uh, this little cot uh, and, you know, and, and all he had to do was kind of pull his covers up every day, but he didn't do it. Now, I'm quick to point out, just because you don't make your bed does, doesn't make you Saddam Hussein. Uh, so there are a lot of people out there that don't make their bed, uh, but that doesn't make them bad people. Yeah. Well, in fairness, if you were headed to the gallows, would you still make your bed? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, of course, I'm not sure at the time we had him. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't yeah. know if he thought uh, there was an end game that put him back in power. I, I'm not sure what he did. But clearly... He was used to having somebody else make his bed, Yeah, uh, and, uh, and he wasn't about to start making yeah. it on his own. Well, I'm going to fast forward to another one of your most famous missions. In fact, they even made a movie about it. Uh, that was the hostage rescue of Captain Phillips of the Maersk, Alabama, from Somali pirates. You say that it actually would have been easier to liberate the entire Maersk, Alabama than to liberate Captain Phillips from that small little lifeboat. Why is that? Uh, what I said was, uh, you know, the SEALs are, you know, we do a lot of rehearsals uh, where we're looking at large, uh, large vessels and, and how to, again, kind of rescue hostages from large vessels. Uh, and, and we have a lot of protocols for doing that. We, we didn't have a protocol for rescuing a guy out of, out of a lifeboat uh, <laughs> because, you know, the lifeboat is very small. And there were uh, you know, initially four uh, pirates in there along with Captain Phillips. So that just becomes a much more difficult situation uh, because it is, you know, you just can't repel onto the onto the small lifeboat and, and everything's got to work out just right. And again, the, uh, the, the SEALs that performed the mission under Captain Scott Moore, who was the, the commander of the SEAL unit at the time, uh, just did a, an, a superb job. Uh, and again, I hope what people take away from all of these stories is, is really not about Bill McRaven. I mean, I was fortunate enough to, to have a, you know, a bird's eye view of all this, but, uh, but when you take a look at the, the young men and the, the great, uh, uh, officers, men and women, that, that uh, ran these missions. Uh, pretty incredible. The crowning mission of your career was, of course, Operation Neptune Spear, perhaps better known as the Bin Laden Raid. This was quietly in the works for weeks. And as head of Special Operations Forces, I have to imagine it's hard for you not to attract attention, especially when you come back to Washington. How did you manage to keep Neptune Spear a secret? Great question. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, I had been diagnosed in 2010 uh, with chronic lymphocytic leukemia (CLL), and uh, and I and this, of course, was uh, was the early part of 2011 when we started this thing. 
Uh, and while I, I didn't tell people overtly that I was coming back to be checked on, uh, I, I think my staff felt that these were questions better not asked. Uh, so I went from Afghanistan, where I was uh, kind of uh, spent most of my time, Afghanistan, and then bounced back and forth between Afghanistan and Iraq. But at the time, I was in Afghanistan, and I would come back every couple of weeks, um, and then for a little bit longer as the mission began to, uh, uh, to really get into full swing on the rehearsals. But also at the same time, which was helpful, from a cover standpoint, was Libya uh, was beginning to fall. And as you recall, uh, there was a little bit of the hunt for Gaddafi, and there was, as Libya was spinning up, that also, for me, became good, as we say, cover for action, uh, because uh, our cover for status, because uh, as I moved from Afghanistan uh, to uh, back to Washington, D.C., I would see people, and they would say, you know, kind of quiet, what's going on? What's going on? And, you know, I'd just kind of nod and kind of give them the old, well, you know, Libya. And they go, oh, Libya, yeah. And, of course, then, then they wouldn't ask any other questions. So uh, while we weren't focused on Libya, of course, uh, other people were. Uh, but it gave me, you know, uh, a great reason for moving around Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, when people would spot me, it was a good, good cover story. And the president was presented with a number of different plans to catch bin Laden. And I was surprised to read in the book that you didn't initially push for it to be a special operations mission. Why not? Well, because, you know, it, it wasn't about us. I mean, at the end of the day, what I wanted to make sure was that we did what was right for the United States of America, what was right for this mission. And frankly, uh, I told the guys, you know, or, or my guy who was with me, I said, uh, look, you know, we're going to do right. This is not about special operations forces. This is about getting bin Laden. And if a, if a bombing mission gets him, uh, either a big bombing mission or a surgical bombing mission, if that's the best way to go, then that's what we want to do. Uh, so, no, I didn't push the special operations raid. It just got to the point where the president recognized, one, a, a big bombing mission, which was going to level the compound uh, was going to you know, kill a lot of uh, innocent, innocent uh, women and children. The president absolutely didn't want to do that. And even the more surgical uh, strike uh, might have killed you know, a couple of innocent civilians, and the president just uh, didn't want to do that either, mm -hmm. in light of the fact that, of course, we didn't know whether it was bin Laden. Uh, but, uh, but the president obviously did not want to have any uh, civilian uh, casualties. Um, so the raid made the best sense. One, we could get in there, we could minimize civilian casualties, uh, and uh, we could verify that it was bin Laden. If we did a bombing mission and we leveled the place, uh, we might get bin Laden, but we might not know it was him. And, and people could always say, well, it wasn't him and uh, he's still alive and the, you know, the mythology of bin Laden would continue. But as it was, we were actually able to you know, not only um, uh, you know, get him on target, but bring the remains back and, and verify that it was bin Laden uh, and, and you know, kind of put the whole issue of bin Laden's identity to rest. Uh, yeah, you insisted on personally seeing him for your own eyes. What did you think when you first saw him? Yeah, so the the, uh, the president, uh, I was on a video conference with the president uh, kind of, uh, at one point in time in the mission, and uh, as the SEAL team was coming back across the border, the president says, well, you know, do you know whether it's been Laden or not? And I told him, no, sir, I need to go you know, uh, take a look at the remains for myself and, and be able to tell you personally that, that I think it's him. So the airfield was just a couple of minutes from my little command post. And I, uh, I drove over there about the time the SEALs were landing. They, they brought the remains back in. We put them on the hangar floor. Uh, I, I unzipped the body bag without getting too graphic. Uh, he obviously didn't look too good. He had, a, had taken a couple rounds. And, and the beard was a little shorter, uh, but it was clearly him. Uh, so, you know, it was important for me to, you know, personally identify it because at the end of the day, I was, I was going to have to tell the president of the United States, who I assumed was going to tell the rest of the world that we had, in fact, got bin Laden. 
Um, and I was able to able to do that with a you know a high degree of certainty. Is it ever surprising to you when you know we have these villains like Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein, and then you have them either dead on a floor or sitting in a prison cell? What is the impression that you get? They just it has to take away so much of what we build up around them. I think that that's a great point. Uh, you know, villains and heroes to some degree, but villains certainly take on a mystique of their own. And uh, and to your point about Saddam, uh, I mean, this guy was a megalomaniac. Uh, he killed you know thousands of his own people, tens of thousands of Kurds. Uh, I mean, he was about as evil as they came. Uh, but when he when he was all alone by himself, uh, you know, he wasn't ten feet tall. He wasn't a, a you know an evil mastermind. He, he was just he was evil personified. But again, kind of a pathetic old man, mm-hmm. evil. Bin Laden. Uh, again, if you recall from the, uh, you know, from what we gathered on the second floor, you know, when the guys went in after they got Bin Laden, they found a, a kind of a treasure trove of intelligence on the second floor, and one of those was a tape of Bin Laden watching TV, and you may remember this uh, because the uh, uh, the president right. made the decision to release that particular tape, and Bin Laden was sitting there, you know, looking at uh, at some uh, again some tape of himself, I think, on on television. And again, a, an incredibly evil person, um, but uh, but also you know pathetic uh, in his own yeah. in his own right. So you know there are there there is true evil in the world, and I think Saddam and Bin Laden kind of personified that evil. Um, but I also point out in the book that you know what I hope people take away from it is that uh, I've seen, frankly, the the worst of humanity. Uh, in my time in the military, uh, in terms of you know what the Al Qaeda did, what the Taliban did, but I have also seen the best of humanity, sure. and uh, and I will tell you the good far outweighs uh, the evil from what I've seen. And the reason that Neptune's spear went off so well is at least in part because it's the kind of scenario that you had experienced many times and gone through in your head over and over. In fact, you say that you had made an intellectual model on why small special forces can succeed against heavily defended enemies. Uh, how does that happen? Can you explain that? So when I was in uh, postgraduate school, so the Navy has a postgraduate school, and, and after Desert Storm, I was assigned to uh, the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And I wrote my thesis. Uh, I, I built a theory of special operations because a successful operation kind of defies conventional wisdom. When you think about Carl von Clausewitz, the great military strategist um, uh, who, who talked about why do militaries succeed, and it was about mass and maneuver. Uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, the more soldiers you have, the better chance you have of succeeding. So it begs the question, well, why do special operations work when it's a small group of guys, a lot of times going against a heavily defended fort? And so I did a study on eight different case studies. Uh, the German raid on a Benamel, which was, you know, a, a, a couple hundred or a hundred or so German paratroopers that went against 1,200 Belgians in a, in a huge fort uh, near Maastricht, uh, and yet they succeeded, took over the fortress in about 20 minutes. Uh, I talk about Entebbe and uh, and some of the great British raids and, and Italian raids, and, and, and you begin to see that somehow special operations really, again, defy this kind of conventional military wisdom. And the answer that I came up with was, one, you, you build a simple plan, carefully concealed, repeatedly rehearsed, and executed with surprise, speed, and purpose. And that becomes kind of the fundamentals of, of a good special operation. It's got to be simple. 
uh, it's got to be repeatedly rehearsed. I mean, you've got to rehearse it, so you have to work out all the frictions. You've got to have a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D. And, of course, the special operations guys are generally better trained uh, and better equipped than the enemy. And all of that is what allows a a small special operations force to succeed over, again, a, a larger enemy force. So that was kind of the fundamentals that I used when building the plan for the bin Laden raid was we want to keep it simple. So I had looked at a number of other options uh, that I kind of immediately discounted because it it made us too vulnerable, I thought, for too long. So my plan was simple. We were just going to fly from kind of point A in Afghanistan to point B in Abbottabad, do the mission and fly back. Uh, I didn't want to make it any more complicated than that because as you begin to make missions more complicated, then you know, more factors uh, come into your success or your failure. So that was, you know, that was the, the crux of, of how we planned the bin Laden raid. And I don't know if you've ever counted, but uh, do you have any idea how many of these types of missions you've commanded over your 37-year career? Well, so after 9-11, I think at one point in time, I, I figured out that I had either, you know, commanded, been on, or, or reviewed, so as a, as a flag officer, as an admiral, Every night, all of the missions, uh, or most of the important missions, would come to me. I would have to review the concept of operations, as, as we say. So at the end of the day, by the time 2011 comes along, I've done thousands of missions, you know, maybe 10,000 missions where I have either, again, commanded them, been on them, or, or taken a look at the concept of operations wow. before they went out the door. Uh, and that's a lot of missions. Yeah. And, uh, and so it, it puts you in a position to know, well, what's going to work and what isn't going to work? Uh, and so back to why we made this mission pretty simple, uh, why we kind of handpicked the troops to do it, uh, it, was because I'd seen this a bunch of times before. Now, this mission was longer. It was 169 miles, I think, from uh, Afghanistan into Abbottabad. It was obviously politically complex. Uh, and, and the men that went on this mission, incredibly courageous because, you know, just getting on the helicopter – uh, and traveling into Pakistani airspace, the Pakistanis would have shot us down in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, you were going into a situation where we didn't know whether or not the compound uh, where bin Laden lived was booby-trapped, and, and that was the biggest unknown. What if the guys landed on the target and, you know, there were pressure plate mines in the courtyard, the doors were rigged with the explosives, bin Laden had a, uh, an, an explosive suicide vest on. These were all the, the unknowns. So, you know, when you look back at it's easy to look back now and say, well, none of that happened. True, but the guys going into it didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you think about the courage it takes to get on that helicopter and the great helicopter pilots and air crew that were supporting it. Uh, pretty damn remarkable. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you about one Navy SEAL who has been in the news and not in a good way recently. That's Edward Gallagher. Uh, he's the SEAL who is being tried for war crimes, including the murder of an injured combatant and attempting to kill innocent civilians, supposedly. Uh, first of all, did you know him during your time as head of special operations? Yeah, I don't recall uh, Eddie Gallagher. Uh, our, our paths may have crossed. Again, I had a lot mm-hmm. of guys working for me, but uh, sure. if uh, if our paths crossed, uh, it, was, it was only tangentially. So I don't know yeah. uh, Gallagher. And, and I don't know other than what I read in the paper. So I, I'm always a little reluctant to talk about the Gallagher case. Uh, what I do know is that, you know, the Navy will, you know, review all of the allegations uh, and, and it will go to trial. It is, I think, you know, it has already gone to an initial trial and then was thrown out and it will be retried, as I understand it. And so I, I'm always uh, reluctant to comment on it uh, until you have a chance to see all the evidence. Mm-hmm. 
and I have not seen all the evidence on, on Gallagher. Yeah, and I don't know if the president has seen all the evidence yet, but he says he's considering a pardon. Uh, do you think that's appropriate at this point? Yeah, so I, I have two concerns about this. One, uh, you know, in the military, we have what we refer to as undue influence. So it is never appropriate for a senior commander to imply to a junior commander how he or she thinks the outcome of a trial or a courts martial or what we refer to as captain's master ought to go. That's hmm. unduly influencing the judgment of the lower commander. Uh, and you're, you're not allowed to do that. Now, once the trial or the courts martial is completed, then once you have the whole evidence, if you are in the chain of command, then you can render a different judgment if you're allowed to do so. So the president certainly has the authority uh, to pardon uh, whoever he wants to after he reviews the, the information uh, that comes out of, the, again, the trial of the courts martial. So, uh, again, I, I would caution the president, don't wait in until the trial is complete and then you get a chance to review all of the evidence. Um, but the other part of this is, again, the Gallagher uh, trial aside, uh, anybody that is found guilty of a war crime, not accused of, but found guilty of a war crime, uh, I have real concerns about the president pardoning somebody who is, in fact, found guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, because we in the military live by the, uh, by, you know, the Uniform Code of Military Justice and the kind of the overarching law of armed conflict. And the law of armed conflict is pretty specific on how you have to deal with civilians, uh, how you have to deal with POWs and detainees. Uh, and if we begin to violate that, or if either our allies or our enemy thinks that we don't uh, you know, follow our own rules, I don't think that's a good precedent at all for, for us to be setting. And I think it undermines uh, you know, the, the military judicial system uh, if we begin to pardon those that are found guilty of war crime. Again, accusations need to be taken to a courts martial. Uh, they need to get all the evidence out. And, uh, and allow people to make a final judgment. But if in the final judgment somebody is found guilty of a war crime, then I think it's a, a very bad precedent to pardon somebody found guilty of a war crime. Now, before we go, recently you were asked about running for president, and you said you're not completely closing the door to running for president. That's not exactly a Sherman-esque statement. Theoretically, if you did, do you think that you would run as a Democrat, Republican, or maybe an independent? Yeah, I'm not sure I, I yeah. left the door open. Okay. Uh, if, if, I, if I did, <laughs> let me close it. Okay. Uh, no, I have absolutely no plans on, on running for, uh, <laughs> for president. Now, what I have said is uh, I like policy. I don't particularly care for politics. Uh, I, I admire and respect those people, uh, those Americans that step up and, uh, and put their name in the hat. Uh, it is just not something I think I would be good at, to be honest with you. Um, but I do like policy, and if the right administration came along and there was an opportunity to serve again uh, in a policy uh, arena, I would absolutely consider that. I mean, it's always an honor to serve the country, um, but right now I have no plans to, to run for, uh, for president. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, in the meantime, the book is called Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations, Admiral William McRaven. It's been an honor and a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Great to join you today. Thanks again to Admiral William McRaven for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Sea Stories, My Life in Special Operations, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. They've combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. 
You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. Go to Ancestry.com slash kick today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash kick for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash kick. Master the tech skills that companies want and develop a job-ready portfolio with the Udacity Nano degree. Udacity uses the most effective online teaching methods and their custom learning plan is designed to fit your busy schedule. In addition, their full suite of career services is there to help you land the job you want. Go to udacity.com slash kick and use code KICK10 to get 10% off. That's udacity, U-D-A-C-I-T-Y dot com slash kick, code KICK10. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.